Dispatch, this is 3-1. Show me a couple Romeo at the home of the regiment. 3-1, this is Dispatch. Papa Welcome to the Papa Romeo Podcast, the only podcast by MPs for MPs with an inside look you can only get at the base of the flagpole. I'm your host, Captain Steve Wynn, joined by the creator and producer, Captain Laura Meads. On this podcast, we're going to uncover the stories that make up our regiment with leadership lessons, wisdom, and helpful tips from MPs across the Corps. Papa Romeo begins right now. today's episode of Papa Romeo. This is our last full episode until we pick back up in January. Stay tuned for a special short episode coming out this fall. Today we have Lieutenant Colonel Frank Dennis who shares his in-depth insight into officer branch as well as really important tips on managing your career. We also talk OERs, boards, and the mission essential requirements list also known as the MAR. Enjoy. So uh, good afternoon and welcome to Papa Romeo. Today we have um, Colonel Frank Dennis, who's currently at Leavenworth uh, attending the PCC and has uh, given us some of his time to answer some questions and conduct an interview. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So just as an icebreaker to get started, if you could choose any person from history to be your imaginary friend, who would it be and why? So, uh, So this is a great question. And uh, I will just start off by saying I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so thank you for allowing me to, uh, to contribute. Um, you, know, the, you always lead off with this question, and it always seems like a personality test in a way, so I always kind of lean in and listen to see what they're going to say. And you, know, you, you get people who you know, pick the Rushmore Four, or you get people who you know, pick you know, Jesus or Dr. King or whatever. And what does that say about the person? So you know, I, I kind of try to think about what the answer is going to say about me, but I think when I narrowed it down, um, I landed on Ernest Hemingway, so uh, I've always loved his books and, and essays, and you know I, I just think it would have been incredible to be with him during some of these moments throughout his life, you know, and uh, have that ability to talk to him about that stuff. He, you know, he lived lived pretty hard and he played pretty hard, um, you know, and I think, I guess selfishly in a way because you know he, he ended up ultimately taking his own life, but you know you wonder if as a friend if you could have been there and maybe, you know, talked him off of that and we would have more works by Ernest Hemingway. So, so, uh, so yeah, I think if I could go back and, uh, you know, get in the DeLorean and befriend somebody, I think Hemingway would probably be pretty cool. All right. So we often hear that successful people have a very set morning routine, um, or just kind of daily routine in general. So do you have one? And if so, what is it? So I think with most people, um, you know, your your morning routine revolves around PT, you know, and that kind of drives the uh, drives the morning events. And and I'll say specifically about you know my time at Fort Knox, uh, it was one of the only times in my career where I really had the ability to come back home after PT and uh, you know get cleaned up, eat breakfast, and you know most importantly, I got to see my kids before they went off to school. And uh, you know I know that's not always going to be the case, and you know 
throughout my career, it really hasn't been the case until Fort Knox. Um, and uh, I just, having that time with them, uh, it really set my mind right. Um, and, you know, really made me feel connected to them before I went off to work. So when and if I can ever capture that again, uh, I'm going to make a very, uh, you know, very specific effort to try and be there in the morning just to see them if I can. Um, and of course, there's going to be times when I can't, and that is what it is, or, you know, maybe I'll end up in an assignment where I have to commute in the morning and, and I, it won't happen. But when and if I can do that, again, I'm going to really try and, and capture that. So, but yeah, outside of that, though, it's pretty standard. Okay. Still not like everyone else's, yeah, I'd say. So, sir, you just left as the Lieutenant Colonel Major Assignments Officer at the ever-elusive branch. It seems like magic happens at HRC, whether one believes it's good magic or bad. Uh, it still seems like magic to us. What can you tell us to help us demystify branch? And what is one thing you wish everyone knew about how branch works? Yeah, so uh, myths, mysteries, and misconceptions about HRC. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, not, not to get into too, you know, too big a detail or, or you know, too much detail about the organization itself, but, you know, one thing that I didn't know until I got there is that officer enlisted branch and enlisted our officer officer branch and enlisted branch they're they're nowhere near one another they're in fact they're in different parts of the building or different parts of the complex altogether so really yeah very rarely did uh you know did officer assignment issues and enlisted assignment issues ever really really cross um you know the very rare occasion where we had to meet up with enlisted branch um to talk an assignment specifically um, and, you know, it's tough because I, you know, being there for two years, that's one part of the job that I didn't really get a good handle on, you know, partly because we're busy and we're kind of focusing on our stuff, but then partly just because of the process that they just don't ever really intersect. Um, we get together in social events, you know, hail and farewells, things like that, promotion ceremonies, you know, we were always there as one team. But, um, but yeah, I think that's one thing that I found interesting that, uh, that we're not even in the same building you know, two, two different parts of the building. Same thing for our reserve and uh, National Guard officers as well. There's completely separate division that manages them as well. Um, I think there's goodness in that. And there's there's probably some, you know, some cross-pollination that we could do and cross-talk. But, uh, but, yeah, it just never really happens. So I think that that's important. Um, you know, I, I think the, another thing in terms of the, the organization of HRC and where MP branch fits into that is, uh, you know, something that really um, was important to me was to understand that MP branch is actually a part of operations division. So, you know, we're up there with all of the other ops division branches. So this is armor, aviation, air defense, chemical engineers, field artillery, infantry. And, and why that's important is because as a branch, we're competing with all of those other branches for immaterial assignments. Um, and so, you know, we've got our MP hard-coded requirements, jobs that only MPs can do, but then there's a, you know, massive amount of immaterial assignments that that we compete for as well um, and so I, I think it's important to understand that in terms of the framework so not only are we competing uh, you know with those officers and with those branches for assignments but also at boards you know so it's the it doesn't say the MP lieutenant colonel's promotion board it says the ops category so this is all those branches and I think that's also important to, to kind of understand um, so I think that brings up another point about officer assignments. You know, we talked about assignments, um, but really, you know, assignments are kind of broken down into two categories. So you've got places and you've got faces. Really, so places are the units, 
faces are all of us, the officers. Um, and, and one thing that I didn't really understand until I got to HRC was that MP branch, although we help staff the places process, so we work with units to identify requirements, ultimately we, as, a, as MP branch, we don't control the, the positions that get validated. So that's done by uh, readiness and distribution. So they're, they're the ones that actually say, according to the Chief of Staff of the Army's manning guidance, according to the requirements from the units on the field, these are the positions that we're going to validate. Once those positions are validated, then MP branch gets told, this is where you're going to send MP officers. Okay. So, so we, you know, we can affect that. We, you know, we work with units. We work with the account managers at HRC to make sure that we're all capturing the requirements. But at the end of the day, if you've got, you know, 12 requirements and you've only got 10 officers, it's the distribution folks that are telling you where you're going to place those 10 officers by priority. Okay. So, so a good example is, is that, you know, you know that your buddy is leaving Fort wherever and you would be the perfect person for that job. And you guys start talking a year out and you're like, oh, it'd be great to just come to Fort wherever and backfill you. And I think it'll be great. My family's going to love it. And then the unit gets involved and they're like, oh, it'd be so awesome. And then it comes time to go log into AIM and you look into the marketplace and that job's not there. And you know that it's a valid requirement. You know that the person's leaving. You know that you're eligible to PCS. So why isn't that job there? Well, the job's not there because, uh, you know, Chief of Staff of the Army's manning guidance is that we're going to fill Korea to 100%. Or we need more officers to go into CENTCOM on last taskings or whatever the requirements are. And that's why that, that position didn't get validated. Not saying it's not a valid position. There's just positions that are a higher priority. And need and so, to be filled. And need to be filled, absolutely. And so, you know, that, that's where the kind of art and science piece comes into it. That's where I get on the phone with, you know, the, the officer and I have to explain to them, you know, why you know, why it didn't work out that way. And, you know, I think one of the goals for us is, you know, we, we may not always get to yes, but at least we can try and get to why and help officers understand why we made the decisions that we made. So, and then uh, I'm trying to think of some other things. So, but, uh, so yeah, so along those lines, I think most people out there know that we operate, at least on the officer side, we operate on two manning cycles, so like a winter or 01 assignment cycles and then summer 02 assignment cycles. Um, I think why it's important for officers to understand those windows, um, one for you, for your own career management, but also if you know if you find yourself in a leadership position, if you're going to be a battalion XO, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing any type of strength management, to know when to reach out to branch to try and, you know, maybe influence that. So a good example is, you know, battalion XOs knowing when uh, MP captain's career course dates are going to happen. And so they can kind of look at their calendar, take a look at company commanders that are leaving, take a look at that officers that are kind of in the queue for company command, project those lieutenants that need to move on and need to go on to MPPCC or MPCCC. Um, you know, just, just, knowing, just knowing what those course schedules are, I mean, that's a powerful tool when you sit down with officers and start talking about career timelines, things like that. Um, you know, officers who have school-aged children, you know, understanding that, you know, maybe that job that you really want is only available during an 01 or winter cycle. And so if you ask for that job or you want to go there, 
you know, you, you may be placing your children in a situation or family in a situation where they're moving at a time that, that may not work out. Um, I think another, another thing to understand about the assignment cycle process is we're really looking at requirements, you know, six to nine months out. And so, you know, you're on ground, you know, this happens a lot with company commanders, I think, you know, you're in the job and you might only be, you might be in the job for like three months and all of a sudden you get that email from, from branch and saying, hey, we need to start talking about what you're going to be doing after command. I'm like, well, I just, I just took command just and we're here. already talking about leaving, exactly, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's how fast the train moves um, and I think you have to be pretty deliberate uh, right up front about that and, and have a plan for what it looks like afterwards. And any job you get into, you know, you know, you don't, you don't want to, you want to, you don't want to not focus on what you're doing at the time. But I think you definitely need to be, you know, you know, checking the horizon and making sure that you have an eye on what's going to be next, um, and and communicating with your leadership about what what you want that to be. So I, I think another, I think another important thing um, to to really kind of understand, at least from, you know, from a leadership standpoint is, uh, you know, you have the ability to affect uh, what requirements do get validated. So there's a thing called the Mission Essential Requirements List, or the MER. Um, and this MER is basically a document that lists all of the requirements that your unit is forecasting that they're going to need for an assignment cycle. And, you know, typically what happens is that that MER gets consolidated by a brigade. You know, so I know that I've got four captains leaving Fort Stewart, four captains leaving Fort Bragg, two captains leaving Fort Drum, and we're going to need captains to come to backfill them. And so all those requirements get placed on this MER, which then gets fed into core, you know, through the S1, G1 channels. It comes up to HRC, and it's that MER that we look at, um, that the distribution folks look at to validate those requirements. So not only are they looking at the requirements, but they're also looking at the unit's prioritization of those requirements. So, you know, if the unit doesn't submit a MER on time or the, or the MER's not accurate or it's not prioritized, you know, all those things make it more difficult for us at MP Branch to be able to go in and justify why we need to send an MP officer to Fort Bragg instead of sending him to, you know, Cadet Command or, or wherever else the Army wants to send that officer. So, um, you know, so for leaders, you know, understanding the MER understanding the MER process and when you as a leader can get involved in that. Um, you know, this is, you know, primarily at the battalion and brigade level, but, uh, but being able to do that and as a commander, getting your hands on that document and making sure that you understand what, you're, what it is that you're requesting and making sure that your command prioritization is reflected on that document. And, and it may not be MPs. It may be we really need an MI officer right. or we're really struggling because we don't have a BMO. And so maybe at the brigade level that MER is that the chaplain is the number one person I need or whoever so but you know you got to capture that on that document because that's that's a document that they're using that readiness and distribution is using exactly to, to validate the exactly positions. the okay. distribution folks are looking at that because I could go next door and say I need all the company commanders in the world but if the unit isn't saying that if they're not communicating the demand signal then we're not singing off the same sheet of music okay so sir having seen every file pass through what does a file need to say to be selected for battalion command We've heard the standard rumor that three of your five uh, last OER seem to be most qualified. Given the profile restrictions senior leaders have, does a highly enumerated write-up with a highly qualified block check equate to most qualified in your experience? So, so I haven't seen every file. That's <laughs> okay. I've, I've only seen you know the, the handful that I was able to that I was able to see. But uh, you know, for battalion command, 
Um, I think the report has to say something about being a battalion commander. You know, I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward, but uh, but some of them don't. And, okay. and maybe that's maybe that's what your senior rater might be trying to communicate to you that maybe you shouldn't be a battalion commander. So you know, what's not said says a lot. Okay. You know, what's not in the OER says a lot. Um, but uh, but honestly, you know, battalion command's really tough um, because it, it really isn't just the block check. Um, you know, board members all have their own voting philosophies and that really weighs in a lot more in CSL than it does for promotion boards. So I think your comment about three out of five, you know, statistically speaking, I think that that probably holds true for lieutenant colonel, for being selected to lieutenant colonel. I think when you get into CSL, you know, that's where things get a little bit, a little bit crazier. Um, you know, board analysis is really tough for me. Um, you know, we have to do it. It's a requirement for us to do it, to get it out to the field, but it's just, it's just cold data. It's just hard stats. And, uh, you know, it's that discussion that you have when you call a branch to talk to them about your individual file uh, where those stats kind of start to warm up. You know, so I'll use last year's CSL for an example. You know, every officer that was selected for battalion command uh, in FY, for FY18, uh, they, they all had, you know, most qualified reports. I mean, straight ACOM most qualified reports. Uh, you know, a varying quality, but the block check was most qualified ACOM. So, you know, I immediately have officers calling me and they're like, well, I don't have a chance because I've got that one HQ that I got when I first got to wherever. And uh, I was stair-stepped here, whatever the case may be. So, you know, talking some of those officers down and reassuring them that it's, that's not, you know, don't, don't go high and right with your career based off of the analysis of just one board. Because every board has its own personality. Well, not only that, but it's a snapshot in time. So, okay. you know, you don't, you don't have to be the best officer, you just have to be the best officer on that board okay. for that year group, for that, you, you, you know what I mean? It's, it makes sense. And so, so a lot of officers, you know, after these board results come out, uh, you know, there's a lot of anxiety because they'll see that, that, that PowerPoint slide and they'll assess themselves, which is what it's for, but then they'll start making, you know, some, some pretty bold life moves based off of, you know, what's only presented to them. So, you know, when those when those charts come out, you know, that's where the leadership conversation engages. It's a vehicle for senior leaders to have conversations with their rated population. It's a vehicle for you to call branch and have that conversation with them and get that pulse check and make sure that you're on the right trajectory. Um, but yeah, it, it's tough. So, so for battalion command, um, you know, the block checks matter. I will tell you that where, the, where it matters the most uh, for battalion command selection is in hard KD. So these are your S3 or XO reports. Um, you know, we've seen officers in the past who have uh, who have gotten almost qualified reports, but had no hard KD time. And the reports that they got were really well written, really highly enumerated, working for very important people and very strategic positions. But because they didn't have hard KD for us, is kind of defined as S3XO. Uh, you know, they weren't selected, and and I won't know because I wasn't on the board. But that's my assessment of why they weren't selected. Okay. Um, the the quality of the OERs as well. Um, you know, we see a lot of most qualified reports that are that are just kind of throwaways. I mean, they're just you did your job. The write up just is pretty bland and vanilla. And you know, those are the block checks there, but you know, the write up's pretty weak. So how does that resonate with a board member when they're reading it? And then I've seen others, I've seen, you know, you kind of alluded to it earlier with the immature profile and a highly qualified report. I mean, you see some of those and, uh, you know, they're, 
it's very clear what the senior rater is trying to say, uh, given the constraints of their profile. And you know, board members have profiles, so I think they're empathetic to to knowing what an immature profile looks like. Um, but I tell people that you know, if you've got an HQ with an immature profile, and another officer has a most qualified report with a really with an equally strong write up, you know, the tiebreaker is going to go to the most qualified block okay. check. So, um, so yes, this elusive unicorn. HQ with an immature profile. I personally believe that they read like a most qualified report. When I'm when I'm scrubbing files, I look at that and I say, okay, it's very clear what the senior rater is trying to say. But what you don't know and what we all won't know is how that's going to stack up against an officer who has a most qualified report with an equally strong write-up. Right. Um, so you know, to, to the point about OERs, I think uh, you know I get a lot of questions about what OER should say and what they. You know what they shouldn't say and how they should read, and I think my you know the best piece of advice that I ever received was that, you know the OER, uh, it, it should be you know an, an OER and COER, it really is a conversation between you as the rater or senior rater to the board, you know, and if you write the senior rater narrative, in a way that you envision, uh, you know the board member sitting across from you on your desk, and you're able to communicate very specifically to them, not necessarily to the officer that you're, that you're rating, but to the board member. That's your audience. That's, that's what that piece of paper, I believe that's what the OER and NCOERs are for. Uh, you know, counseling sessions, that's, that's where you have that, that conversation with the rated officer. But you know, when it comes time to putting it on paper, you want to be very clear and you want to send a very clear message to, to the board. And so that's easy when it's, you know, when, when the officer or NCO is great, those write themselves very well, and you know, unfortunately, it's easy when they're bad because those write themselves pretty well and pretty easily. It's that gray area where you know you're you're trying to communicate to the board that the officer probably needs to get promoted. They probably deserve to get promoted. Maybe in a you know a profile constrained environment, this officer may have done better or worse. Um, but but yeah, at the end of the day. I think some of the reports that, that I struggled with the most were ones that were just very vague and very confusing or sent mixed messages. You know, you, you would contradict yourself in the write-up. Um, and, you know, Branch has several examples of, of when that happens on OERs and, and kind of the, the do's and don'ts on, on what to do. But, uh, but, yeah, I think at the end of the day, if you just follow the rule that you're having a conversation with the board, I don't think you can go wrong. Okay, and following along the lines of, uh, you know, talking about OERs, um, are there any other mistakes that you see officers making in writing OERs besides what you've already mentioned? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, you know, other than just kind of inconsistencies, you know, just, you know, saying that the officer is the number one officer and then, you know, the subsequent language that follows it is very kind of vague and loose or, or vice versa, you know, you, you say that the officer is within the top 10% of a population and then you highly qualify them and then there's no comments about, you know, potential or anything like that. So, you know, those are the ones that get difficult to try and dissect. And I think that when you're, you know, again, putting, in the, putting it in the framework of communicating to a board member, you know, they're, they're looking at thousands of files and they're really cranking through these things. And if you, if you give them a reason to have to stop and do the math on percentages, or you make them pause and you know try and interpret it what it is that you're you know what you're trying to say. 
uh, you know, I think that you could be disadvantaging the officer that you're that you're rating. Uh, you know, and, and, and maybe maybe you're trying to be vague. Uh, but again, that's when I go back to, you know, the OERs that I've seen that were written that way. I have a feeling that the conversation that the senior rater had with the rated officer was probably not as specific as it needed to be. You know, where I hate to say it, but you know, we want to try and make the officer feel good about the report, and we're not as honest as we probably could be with them. Right. Uh, and then that's not communicated to a board, because the officer is going to leave that meeting thinking that, oh, this is a great report. It says that I'm in the top 15% of the you know rated officers or what have you. And then you know we we obviously know that that's not strong enough. Um, and then the officer's surprised when they're not selected for whatever. So uh, you know, again, I think if you put it in that framework. And the officer that you're counseling or that you're you know, presenting the OER to understands that that's the framework. Look, your performance was this. This is what it says because this is what I'm telling the board. I, I, I don't think that there is a lot of room for confusion there. You know, I, I was genuinely surprised when I had officers that would reach out to me and uh, you know, didn't realize that their OERs weren't as strong as they thought they were. Um, you know, and some of that is just not knowing because, you know, after, you know, years of sitting on the desk, you see millions of OERs and they kind of, you pick up a pattern for them. But, uh, you know, you obviously don't know what your peers' OERs look like, right. uh, you know, unless you're really weird and you sit down and do that. Right. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, so, so again, I, I go back to, you know, reaching out to Branch, calling them, you know, getting an honest assessment. I mean, that's, that's genuinely what we're there for is to, to give you a pulse check. Uh, um, and, and give you that kind of 360 perspective that you may not have on your own reports. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of pitfalls and, you know, what not to do's and things like that, uh, you know, MP Branch has a product um, that, that's, that's pretty useful in terms of some of the stuff that we've seen. Uh, you know, I think it's along the lines of, you know, words matter, and it kind of gives you a framework of, of what those OERs look like. Um, and that's a powerful tool for you, too, as a rated officer to be able to look at that and go, oh, okay, I, I can kind of tell that this is actually kind of more of a, you know, a mid-level mid kind of write-up. Or this is, wow, I didn't realize this is, this is really great. This is a really great OER. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's anything overtly specific that, you know, that I saw that really jumped out at me other than, other than that, just the inconsistencies. Okay. So switching track just a little bit, we always hear that MPs have a very um, have very few applicants for broadening opportunities. Why do you think that this is happening, and how do we compare to other branches, uh, especially so since we're in the operations division? Yeah. How do we compare to other branches for those broadening opportunities? So so broadening, I think you know there there's two broadenings kind of broken up into different categories. So there's army broadening, which is kind of non-competitive. I think that's not what you're talking about. So. Anything you do outside of the regiment is broadening. Okay. Right. So that that's that's kind of one thing when we talk to officers and we start talking to them about broadening. Anything you do outside of the regiment is is broadening. So the, um, so even those branch and material positions that have to be filled post command kind absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So by regulation, you need to go off and you need to do broadening. Anything outside of anywhere, if you look on your OER and it says anything other than thirty one alpha. You know that that's broadening, or even as a thirty-one alpha, but in a but in an organization where it's not MP specific. Okay. You know, so you're a you know an APMS, you're still an MP. It may still be coded on your on your ORB as thirty-one alpha, but you you are in cadet command. You are doing a broadening assignment. You know, First Army is the same way. Userex the same way. Um, 
so so you have that. So that's Army broadening, and then you have competitive broadening programs. So these are the BOP programs that you see, um, and then there are kind of two levels of broadening or BOP programs. There you have MP specific programs that you can compete for, and then you have Army broadening programs. And uh, I I think that uh, I think that we actually do really well as MPs. Uh, at least the the couple of years that I was at HRC. You know, again, we're in ops division, and we are a very small branch within ops division. And when you see the numbers of you know JCS fellows that we have, when you see the numbers of uh, you know ACS officers, um, you know, and some of these other programs, I think per capita we actually do really well, and we compete really well against other combat arms branches. And I think where we probably, um, you know, we we probably trip ourselves up is we have a lot of officers that self-select, you know, so for whatever reason, they think that they're not competitive enough, uh, or, you know, they don't, um, they don't apply. And if you don't apply, then you can't, you can't get it. And, you know, subsequently there, I, I get calls every once in a while. It's like, man, how did Dennis get that job? Well, he was, you know, one of four people that applied, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to pull off that population. So I would say that if you're interested in competing for a broadening assignment, you know, don't self-select. You know, put put yourself in for it. Uh, call branch and have that conversation. Do you think that I could you know, could have a shot at this? And they'll they'll give you an honest assessment on on where they think you're you're competitive or not. Um, there there have been times where I've actually had to tell officers that I don't think broadening is a good idea for them. Um, you know, their career timeline didn't support it. Uh, maybe their you know their you know their OERs didn't support it. Um, maybe you know timing like so i get a i get a guy who's coming out of you know s3xo time from a battalion you know he wants to go to a joint assignment and i look at his file and and i say and i I think that you'd be great for a joint assignment but i'm nervous because that rating environment is kind of weird and you know it's not an mp specific rating environment and now you're exposing yourself right before you go into your lieutenant colonel board and right before you go into csl and so you know, maybe timing doesn't work out right because you're going to get stair-stepped or, you know, you're going to be working for some Navy rear admiral or something who doesn't have a profile for Army officers or whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, you have to look at each individual case individually, but uh, you know, there, you know, sometimes there's reasons why we specifically try and steer officers away from broadening programs. Okay, um, that to, makes sense. To try and help them out. You know, hey, look, actually, I think you probably need to go to this organization because you need to get another OER before you go into that board. And if you get that OER, I think you're gonna have a better shot at you know, achieving whatever goals it is that you've laid out for yourself. You know, and there, there's some officers who, you know, they get very uh, fixated on a broadening program and they've defined success as that program. Like, I, I have always wanted to go to the joint staff and be a JCS fellow, and I have the file to support it and I wanna do it. And you know, I have that conversation with the officer, and okay, if that's what you want to do, then then we'll try and make it work. Um, sometimes you have to sit down with them and you have to lay it out. Okay, hey, look, I know you joined the army because you wanted to do X, Y, and Z. This broadening opportunity is really going to take you off of your trajectory. Um, is that something you still want to do? And then you know, ultimately try and support them in their goals. But but yeah, I think we compete pretty well actually. Okay. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying today's interview, but we're going to take a quick break for a special announcement. Papa Romeo is looking to expand the team. I really want to keep the podcast going and continue sharing the stories of our regiment, but I could use some help. 
If anyone out there is interested in conducting interviews, assisting with social media, or any other ideas, please shoot me an email at paparomeomp at gmail.com or message me through our Facebook page. Also, we are considering making some changes to our core questions. If you have any suggestions, please send them my way. And now, back to our interview with Lieutenant Colonel Dennis. So getting to some of our core questions, sir, can you tell us about a time in your career when you thought it was over, you know, made some kind of mistake, however big or small, uh, and, and somebody stepped in to look out for you, either a leader or a battle buddy, and then maybe some of the characteristics of that leader or, or what it taught you? So, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I kind of thought about this question a little bit, and, you know, I think that, you know, it kind of ties into knowing, knowing the podcast and kind of knowing what questions are going to be coming up, you know, I, I think you've got some... Some other ones where you talk about worst day and, and, and best day in the Army. And I, I think a lot of these questions are all kind of captured by one moment, really. But, you know, not to get into the details of, of you know, the incident itself, but, uh, you know, everyone's probably had, uh, you know, one of their worst days when they were deployed. Um, you know, and, and I, I had one of those days where it was particularly difficult. And, and I remember calling my battalion commander at the time and, uh, you know, kind of, I mean, I guess, you know, in a, in a moment of vulnerability, like telling them, hey, I don't think I'm the right person for the job. Like, I just, I think this is too much. Um, I know that you've entrusted me with this uh, confidence, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I don't know if I'm making the right decisions and I don't know if I'm the right person for the job. You know, just kind of going through that moment of self-doubt. And, uh, you know, my battalion commander at the time, you know, basically said, well, I put you in that position. And uh, I have all the faith and confidence in you that you're going to do great things. Um, you know, this is a, it's a tough day, but we're here, and we've got a lot more deployment left. And, you know, your, your people need you, and you need to you know, basically believe in yourself. And, uh, you know, and in that moment where, you know, I had self-doubt, you know, he, he was able to, you know, reinstill that, that confidence in me. And so even when I, you know, doubted myself, I had a leader who, you know, had, had faith and confidence in me, or at least told me that he had faith and confidence in me, you know, and then, uh, you know, later that night, you know, after I, you know, sitting in pity, but, you know, I, I found a, you know, a satellite phone and I called my wife and, you know, looking for, looking for more pity, you know, and I called her and, uh, you know, she said the exact same thing, you know, that my battalion commander said, you know, she said, you're there, you know, they, they trusted you that you were going to be able to do a good job, and it was a bad day. But you know, I, I think you're gonna, I think you're gonna get through this. And so, you know, I have my battalion commander on one side telling me that they believed in me, and you know, I have my wife telling me that she believed in me. And you know, I, I very quickly, you know, got out of my, you know, stopped my pity party, and then uh, and then picked it back up and, and got after it. So, so yeah, so I, I would say that you know, having having leadership that. You know that not only believes in you, but you know makes you believe in yourself. I think is very powerful. And, and, and in that moment where I you know I questioned myself, you know they they didn't, and they instilled that confidence in me, and I was able to keep going from that. Um, and so yeah, so you know I I think that that was a pretty powerful moment for me, and uh, you know I've I've kind of been able to capture that in a bottle and and keep it with me. And it, it sounds like sir, you know, oftentimes we we kind of feel possibly in the army as if we have to um as if to be superman and we always have to portray that yeah but but it sounds like your leadership um even when you you didn't feel that and you 
you told them that, which we, we don't often make ourselves that vulnerable, but you did. And instead of, you know, instead of telling, you know, you, you have to be Superman, they, they said, no, it's okay for you to feel this way, but, but I know that you can make this yeah, absolutely. happen. Absolutely. And, you know, in the framework of the question, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you thought it was over, mm-hmm. the point where you thought your career was over. And, you know, I thought about that before I made the phone call. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm about to call my boss and basically tell them that, I don't think that I'm cut out for this. You know, I mean, I'm not, you're not saying I'm, I quit. I wasn't at that point where I was ready to throw in the towel, but I'm, I'm communicating to my boss that I don't think I can do this. And I mean, that's, you know, in some, some respects, that's, that's career suicide. Right. You know? yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're telling your boss that you can't do your job, but you know, I think that, you know, two things. One, I think that I knew that I was in an environment of trust. I knew that I had the relationship that I had with the battalion commander that, that, that they could hear me out. Um, you know, as an empathetic leader, I, I knew that my battalion commander knew that things were things were going rough, and uh, you know, but but rather than let me feel sorry for myself, or you know, rather than really acknowledge, you know, any of that feeling of pity or self doubt, you know, they, they just doubled down and just said no, you you know you you have what it takes, and and, and you are capable of doing this, and and I think that that's pretty powerful uh, as a leader to be able to do that. Um, and I don't even know, maybe they thought that I couldn't do it, you know, you, you never know, but, but, you know, they, ne- that was never communicated to me. It was always, no, you're, you're going to do it. Um, and, you know, and then that confidence that I was, you know, then given, I was able to communicate that to my people, like, you know, look, we can get through this. Um, and we did. And, and, you know, we, we all, we all made it back and, and we all did well afterwards. So, but, but yeah. All right, and so what about one of the funniest things you've experienced in the army? Getting to memories. Golly, there, there's just there there are just so many and yeah, so many moments and I I, I genuinely genuinely cannot cannot yeah like, I think this is pick one, one specific yeah, one. <laughs> I, can't, I can't I can't really pick you know nail down one specific moment. I think you know I will tell you that they. You know, looking looking through my memories, almost all of them involved soldiers in some capacity doing soldier stuff. You know, and and uh, and you know, those are those uh those moments that you know even now, you know, ten fifteen years later, when you're on Facebook and you're, you know, uh, you know, a soldier will pop up, and everyone will dogpile them about that one time <laughs> when we were wherever and they did that thing, and you know, it. I guess in a way, I'm really lucky that there are so many that I can't really narrow it down to one funniest moment, um, and uh, and yeah, they just continue to happen. I you know the the army is endless for comedy, so I would agree with that, sir. Um, especially about being lucky. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, what about a best bonding experience you've had with fellow MPs? So 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 yeah, d- definitely when I was deployed. I mean, I think that that's where those relationships are really codified. Um, you know, the, the relationships that I made as a company commander, uh, and, and even when I, you know, when I, I had the opportunity to deploy, uh, when I was stationed in England, uh, with, with the British Army. So I, I deployed as part of the British task force and, you know, those relationships that I made with, uh, you know, British officers and soldiers are, are just as strong as the ones that I have with, you know, my American soldiers. And, um, so yeah, I, I think that those, you know, the, those times of, of, of shared hardship, you know, or when you come together. Um, you know, in any in any organization, you know, you have shared hardship, and that brings you together. Um, you know, best bonding experience. Um, it'll be it'll be very difficult for me to to 
um, have a more formative experience in my time as a company commander in Iraq. Um, I'm still very close to all of those soldiers, the, the ones that I can be. Um, still very close with them, and then it's it's an awesome thing to see them still very connected. You know, this is almost 12 years later, and, and they're still very tight. Um, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I'm not, you know, communicating with one of them either through social media or through text message or, or, or you know, just emails, um, phone calls every once in a while when I'm real lucky. But, uh, but yeah, I think that that, that experience probably is one that uh, you know, I'll keep keep with the rest you know for the rest of my life all right sir and, and finally um what about the worst day you've had in the army yeah so it goes back to that previous story about you know the, the time when i thought it was kind of all over and you know uh, you know again I, I think everyone could probably put their worst day into this context um but uh but i i think i think what what made the event uh you know kind of kind of uh you know overwhelming was a uh, you know, I, I felt like as a leader, I was put in a position where I, I had no other options. And looking back on it now, obviously, I had tons of options, you know, but at the moment, and at that time, you know, it, it was pretty bad. And then I, I think the other thing that that resonates with me was, um, you know, the impact to everybody else around you, you know, so to say that it was my worst day, I think it was probably my worst day, because it was a lot of people's worst day. And I really internalized that as a leader and, and kind of took that on and, you know, dissected the reasons why I made the decisions I made. And, and you know, you know, you do, you know, you do a formal after action review and try and figure out what went wrong. But, you know, but I think that, you know, that worst day was was made worse by the fact that I knew that it was a lot of other people's worst day as well. Um, but yeah, but again, kind of going back to the shared experience and that shared hardship, though, you know, those people that are around you, you know, those are the ones that get you through it. And, you know, I, I would I would say to anybody, if you feel like you're going through something alone, you know, you are absolutely not alone. And, you know, chances are there are people around you that are feeling the same way or care about you enough to make sure that you're not the only one that's feeling that way. Um, and so I was very fortunate that you know, even though I was internalizing what I felt like was all of their worst day, uh, you know, that, that community and that, that shared sense of hardship is actually what ultimately kind of got us all through it. Um, and, and I'm very fortunate for that. But, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, in those moments where you feel like you're alone and, you know, the weight of the world is on you, um, especially in leadership positions, because we have the to the tendency to to internalize that. You know, I would say that you're definitely not alone, and that uh, chances are there's somebody else in your formation that's feeling the same way, or at least you can talk to, and uh, and talk it out, and get on the other side of it, and be better on the other end of it for it. So, so as we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast, sir, um, you're here attending at Leavenworth, attending the battalion PCC in preparation for battalion command. So what are you most looking forward to about Battalion Command, and is there anything that you'd like to share with listeners who may end up as leaders in your battalion? Yeah, so, so what, I'm, what I'm most looking forward to about Battalion Command is, is, is honestly just being around soldiers and NCOs and, and warrant officers. And, I mean, you, it's tough. I mean, I joked at HRC because I said previously, you know, like we weren't even in the same building as, as Enlisted Branch. And, and I, you know, I joked at one time that, you know, I have to go to the DFAC to actually see soldiers because I'm in a cubicle farm surrounded by other officers and civilians. 
So I am very much looking forward to getting back to the Operational Army, uh, you know, getting back to, you know, you know, where they say kind of cliche where the rubber meets the road, uh, you know, and, and just, just getting a chance to be around all that energy again. Um, you know, cubicle work is, is what it is, you know, and I think all of us, especially, the, you know, the Iron Majors out there, you know, you're going to find yourself surfing a, surfing a desk for, for a while. And so, um, you know, just the ability to get back out there to the field and be around all of that, that positive energy again is going to be great. Um, so the second part of your question, you know, anything you'd like to share with listeners that may end up in your battalion? Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, that, that it's kind of trying to figure out how I want to say this, but so I, I think that, um, you know, one question, and it always comes across as a loaded question whenever you get asked is, uh, you know, what can I do for you? Like, what can I do for your organization? You know, what can I do to help make your organization better? And, and it's a very genuine question. And, you know, when, when a commander comes in and they're like, hey, what can I do? You know, what can I do for you? You know, you, you always kind of sit back in your chair or sit back and, you know, first and foremost, because you have to admit that there's something wrong that you need help with, um, you know, and that can be kind of exposing. Uh, and then, then secondly, it's usually, you know, nothing, everything's okay. We got it all taken care of. But, you know, I will tell you that as a, as a leader of an organization, um, if you're not constantly thinking about ways to improve your organization, um, I, I think maybe there's, you know, that's a litmus test. You know, may, maybe it's time to get back in the assessment loop and try and figure that out. And so, you know, at any level, not just my future battalion command, but at any level, when a, you know, when a senior leader comes in and they say, hey, well, what can I do to help make your organization better? You know, I, I think that it's okay to have an answer to that question and, and to say, you know, hey, these are the things that we're working on collectively. These are the things that my organization is trying to achieve. Uh, I think it could be, you know, whatever, whatever assistance you could provide in that way. You know, Sergeant Major is notorious for that. You know, they, they come in and they, you know, all right, what can I do to help? You know, and they're like, oh, I really, really don't need your help, you know, but, but, but you might. And, and, you know, you could, you could see that, uh, especially, um, you know, at the battalion level, you know, you know, never underestimate the power of your position. You know, that, that could be the same for a company commander and first sergeant. You know, you, your, your position carries a tremendous amount of authority, and you can get stuff done for your soldiers uh, if, if you approach it the right way. So, uh, you know, so for, so for those of you that are going to be in my future battalion, I, I would say that, you know, you know, be prepared for me to help, uh, and I'm there to try and make the organization better. So have a good answer for that question, <laughs> and we'll get after it. Sounds good, sir. Um, so what is one piece of advice you would give to a younger you? Call Branch. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I, 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 yeah, I, I joke, I joke, but I, you know, I, I, never, I never called Branch. Uh, and, you know, the irony is not lost on me that I'm the guy that never called Branch and then was brought to Branch. But, uh, you know, genuinely, the, the, the first time that I ever really communicated with, you know, with my career manager is when I was told I was going to HRC. So probably not the best <laughs> example but uh but yeah I, I i would tell you that um you know that that we're there to, you know mp branch is there to help you navigate your career you know i mean i think that it's safe to say that you're probably you know your your best career manager you know i'm not going to know what your life's goals and ambitions and dreams and stuff are unless you call and communicate that to me and you know i, I always kind of use the sports analogy when i was there but uh you know if you if you take the you know, the player agent management type model, you know, HRC and the army, you know, that's the ownership, 
You know, they're very much looking out for the organization. They want to make sure that the organization wins and succeeds. Uh, you know, the desk, MP branch, you know, we're, we're kind of the agents. You know, we're the ones that are trying to get you, the player, to the right team, get you the right deal, make sure that it works for your family, make sure that it works for your career, ultimately to make the, the you know, the, the organization better because we want the team to win too, but, but your piece of that. And I think that that's, you know, luckily, you know, my, my couple of years on the desk, I felt like I was able to do that. And like I said previously, we, we may not always get to yes, but hopefully we at least got to why, you know, we, we put you in a place and why you ended up where you ended up going. Um, you know, I kind of I, I kind of joke, uh, you know, with with officers that I I wish I could give you, you know, your number one assignment. You know, I I promise you, no one at HRC's trying to give you your worst assignment because I don't want you to call and yell at me. You know, right. I, mean, I just right. But but you know, at the end of the day, there's army requirements and and you know somebody has to go to those jobs and you know you could you know you could kind of shrug your shoulders and say well there's no bad assignments just bad attitudes you know or you could you know you could lose uh, a healthy empathy for the process and you know there there's a saying at HRC you know don't don't process humans humanize the process you know and I think we you know we really tried to do that um, I think that two years or thereabouts is probably uh, about the life cycle for an assignments officer mm-hmm. because you do you, you know you genuinely you do start losing a healthy level of empathy um, you know you, you get burned you know you, you get officers that that'll call up their geo whoever and burn you and you've got officers who you know you you thought were friends that you know you may lose some friends and I'm sure I'm probably not going to get Christmas cards from a couple officers out there but you know as with most jobs it's very easy to focus on the very, very small population of officers or, or people within your formation that, that make it difficult. And you, you very quickly lose sight of, you know, the 99% of the, of the people that are, that are just doing great things um, and, and that it works out for. And, you know, I know that when, you know, when I leave and I move on and I look back on my time at Branch, it will be, you know, very much rose-tinted glasses. And, I, and I'll remember a lot more of the, the ones we got right than the ones that, uh, the ones that we may have missed. All right, so closing out, sir, is there anything you'd like to leave with our listeners? No, I, you know, I kind of mentioned it before, but I, I think it's really important um, to have a very, you know, to have a deliberate plan uh, for your career. Uh, you know, it, it really wasn't until, uh, you know, I was out of company command and I had kind of made that mental commitment that, okay, I, I think I'm going to stay in the Army. I think, that's, I think this, is, this is what I want to do, where I actually sat down and, and you know, looked at a calendar or looked at anything, uh, you know, like a career map or, or something like that, where I laid out, okay, where am I going to be in three years, five years, seven years, you know, you know, where is my family going to be in all of that, uh, and and really very deliberately sit down and kind of envision what my career is going to look like, and and along that way, you know, creating goals for yourself, you know, hey, look, if if you want to do X. You know, chances are you could call Branch and they could tell you why or why not you can get to X and, and, and be realistic with yourself. But, but I think, you know, having, having to help officers retire, um, especially some of our senior officers retire the last couple of years, you know, there were, there were officers who got to the end of their career and, and genuinely didn't have a plan. You know, they, they, you know, they didn't, I don't know if they didn't expect that it was going to end or didn't want it to end, um, but you know those are the ones that I struggled with. Where, you know, I, 
you know, you, you clearly knew that, that, that at some point your Army career is going to come to an end. And, and if you have the ability to shape that and to try and write that, uh, you know, Branch could be a part of that. You know, hey, look, I know you really want to get back to California, but, uh, you know, there are no MP hard-coded jobs that I can get you to. So let's do some expectation management and let's try and figure out what a compromise will be. Um, you know, or you know, the, the ones that really kind of, you know, that personally stuck with me were the ones where, you know, family, you know, family uh, became kind of the, the, the consideration was, hey, look, I have to do this for my family. And, uh, you know, you try and help them out as much as you can. But, um, you know, but if you don't, if you're not deliberately planning and factoring in your family into that process, um, you know, it becomes very difficult right at the end when you're trying to sprint your way to the finish line. Um, so have a very deliberate plan. And, and even if, you know, even if you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a brand new officer and, and you may not, you, you may not know if you're going to want to stay in the army for the rest of your career, uh, you know, have, have an honest conversation, you know, about what that looks like. You know, if, if I do get to that decision point and I want to leave the army, what is my plan to leave the army? Uh, you know, we have a lot of officers who, call and, and they express that they want to, you know, refrat or, 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 you know, UQR or whatever. And, and you, the first question on my mouth usually is, okay, what do you want to do? What are you going to go do? And some of them have an amazing plan and, wow, that sounds incredible. And then some of them you just kind of can tell they're, they're still reaching out there trying to figure out what they want to do. And I will tell you that if you, um, if you allow the Army to steer your career, the Army will steer your career and you will meander to all of the places that you may or may not want to go. Um, I will also tell you that you could be very precise and very deliberate in your planning, but the Army gets a vote, and you, it may or may not work out, and you kind of have to roll with the punches. Um, I, I, think, I think the other thing that I would, that I would probably say is, uh, you know, your, your, your time in the Army, it, it, it sounds crazy, but it's, it's very short. You know, it's, it's not, it definitely goes by a lot faster than you think it does. And, uh, you know, having the, the opportunity to talk to officers uh, as they were retiring or as they were separating from the Army, um, you know, you, you, when you do leave, because all of us will leave the Army at some point, you just want to make sure that it's on, you know, as good a terms as it can be. You know, and, it, and it's tough because, you know, we, you know, we had officers who were separated from the Army. We have officers who meet their MRD or, or for whatever reason, it's not, it's not on their timeline. It's not within their terms. And, uh, you know, I think about those officers a lot because a lot of them have, they've done the deployments and they've, they've you know, they've, they've made sacrifices and now it's come to this point in their career where the Army is saying it's time, you know. Um, and I just hope that you know, when that time comes for those officers or even for myself, if it comes to that point, then I could look back and be, you know, be proud of that career and know that the choices that I made, you know, got me to this point. And I can, I can leave proud of my service. So, yeah. Right, sir. Well, thank you so much for your time and joining us on uh, Papa Romeo. Um, and we really appreciate it. No, I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thank you for, for everything that you do. I know that this is a, um, it's a it, somewhat thankless task. Um, it's a massive undertaking that, that you guys have taken on. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you letting me be a, a really small part of it. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Pop Romeo. We would like to thank Lieutenant Colonel Dennis for taking the time to speak with us. We also extend a thank you to MPRA and freemusicarchive.org. Until next time, assist, protect, defend, Pop Romeo, out. Thank you.